Good morning, souls. Thank you so much for um, joining us today on the second Sunday of Easter. It is a pleasure to be here with you. This morning, we're going to explore one of my favorite figures in all of scripture, Mary Magdalene. The title of this talk is, I have seen the Lord witnessing the resurrection with Mary Magdalene. At the top of your handout, you can see some images of her. A woman in deep physical sorrow over the death of her Lord. A triumphantly dignified leader proclaiming the resurrection. The story of Mary Magdalene asks us to hold great joy and great sorrow together. So let's take a look at who Mary Magdalene was and who she was not. We'll explore her story and meditate on the resurrection narrative in John. I'd appreciate you making note of your questions and holding them to the end. First, who wasn't Mary Magdalene? You might have seen her portrayed as a penitent prostitute with long, freely flowing hair and clothing that just barely hides a voluptuous figure. You might have heard Gnostic and New Age interpretations of her as the essence of the divine feminine, a counterpart to Jesus' divine masculine. The Da Vinci Code popularized some interpretations of her as the wife or lover of Jesus. And the crowdfunded show The Chosen interprets Mary Magdalene as being a terror to the local populace, inhabited by a demon named Lilith, who was a demon from regional mythologies. But even earlier than that, in 591, Pope Gregory officially conflated Mary Magdalene with Mary of Bethany, the woman who anointed Jesus for burial by washing his feet with perfume. I want to be clear, this act was done by Mary of Bethany, not Mary Magdalene. But the visuals of a woman washing Jesus' feet with perfume and her hair in tears contributed to misinterpreting that woman's role in Jesus' ministry when the two women were conflated. Magdala and Bethany are 100 miles apart, so even though they share the same first name, it's unlikely that these women would have been the same person known as coming from the same place, or coming from both places. So here we leave these misinterpretations. If you'd like to learn more, reach out to me and I'm happy to share more information and resources. But in our time together, I'd like to focus on the true story that is presented in the Gospels. So who was Mary Magdalene really? She's mentioned by name in the Gospels 13 times. That's more than any other woman besides the Virgin Mary and more than most of the 12 disciples besides Simon Peter. In multiple places, the Gospel writers note that Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene, but the story of her exorcism is not told, and the demons and their symptoms are not named. So this could be because the exorcism was done without many witnesses or because it was not dramatic enough to warrant its own place in the Gospels. And there's no canonical reason to assume that the demons led her to prostitution since the Gospel writers apply that word elsewhere but not to Mary Magdalene. Unlike most of her portrayals in Christian art and literature, she is not shown in the Gospels as perpetually penitent for her past sins. Instead, the demons are gone. They are in her past, and she has gone forth in freedom. Mary Magdalene was one of the woman, women who traveled alongside Jesus and the Twelve. Luke writes of them as ministering to Jesus and the Twelve out of their own resources. 
That means financial resources, which means independent wealth. All four gospel accounts place Mary Magdalene at Christ's passion and resurrection. Two accounts in Mark and John show Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene alone. Two accounts in Matthew and Luke show Jesus appearing to the myrrh bearers. Mary Magdalene, along with Joanna, Salome, Mary the mother of James, Mary the wife of Clopas. They are sometimes called myrophores, like Christopher means Christ bearer, myrophore means myrrh bearer. So now that we have a better idea of how the Gospels present her, let's consider who she was. Her toponym or geographical name, like Jesus of Nazareth or Anne of Green Gables, tells us that she's from a village called Magdala, now called Migdal. On the second page of your handout, you can see a view of Migdal from Mount Arbel. Migdal is a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee, not too far from Capernaum. To this day, you can order St. Peter's fish in restaurants there. It's served whole, head, tail, everything. Mary Magdalene had independent financial means from which she ministered to Jesus, and she had freedom to move about the land. She may have had high social status because of her wealth. She might have been a patroness of her local synagogue, which was common among wealthy Jewish women at the time. She was likely widowed or divorced, which freed her from family responsibilities to travel as she pleased. If her husband had died without an heir, or if she was the only heir of her natal family's wealth, financial independence was a legal option for her in the Roman Empire at that time. Her ministry to Jesus in the Twelve is echoed in the establishment of the diaconate in Acts 6. The same word for Mary Magdalene ministered to Jesus is the word that we use for the deacons in Acts 6. Uh, like the first six deacons and the apostles, Mary Magdalene freed Jesus and the Twelve to minister without worrying about food or clothing. I like to imagine her and the other women working together to care for Jesus during his ministry. Maybe they mended his robes from the terrors of the crowds grasping at him. Maybe they guarded Jesus during his prayer so he would not be interrupted. Mary Magdalene and the others likely possessed a lot of creativity and canniness, caring for Jesus, Peter, and the motley crew of teenage disciples as they traveled around casting out demons and healing lepers and multiplying loaves and fishes. She and the other women were one of God's special provisions for Jesus' ministry. Otherwise, Jesus may have looked and smelled a little bit more like his cousin, John the Baptist. Below the picture of Migdal on your handout, you can see two images of Mary on the day Jesus rose from the dead. Mary Magdalene was the first human person to see the risen Lord because she was faithful to him. She waited until the Sabbath ended to go to the tomb with specially chosen materials to care for Jesus' dead body. But instead, she was surprised by her risen Lord. Jesus trusted Mary Magdalene to care for him during his ministry, and that trust extended to carrying the message of his resurrection and ascension to the disciples. Jesus had been portrayed by Judas and denied by Peter, yet Mary Magdalene remained faithful to him, returning to the tomb to care for him. Because Jesus sent Mary Magdalene with the message of his resurrection and ascension to the disciples, who would soon become the apostles, Mary Magdalene is properly known as the apostle to the apostles. 
At key moments in Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection, we see faithful women testifying to the truth, often seeing things as they are and believing Christ when others do not. Women like the Virgin Mary, Elizabeth, and Mary and Martha of Bethany. The theologian Wendy Wright says, it is especially striking that at the core of our faith and the accounts that point to the resurrection itself, it is the women who are present. It is not specifically their gender that is significant as much as their marginality to positions of power and privilege. Women like the tax collectors, sinners, the blind, the lame, and the leper were the outsiders of their day and all of them were singled out by Jesus during his ministry. The role of women in the Gospels reminds us that Jesus brings about a new kingdom where worldly power and authority have no sway. What the world considers insignificant or unlovely, Jesus cherishes as an opportunity for his grace and truth. Even with a few more measures of freedom than other women in her society, Mary Magdalene was still not seen as an equal to the men in her world. Yet Jesus trusted her first with the news of his resurrection, not Peter or John or anyone else. Now with a better understanding of Mary Magdalene as she was and what she brought with her to the tomb, let's read the narrative from John 20 together. But Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she stooped down to look into the tomb. There she saw two angels clothed in white, one at the head and one at the feet of where Jesus' body had been lying. Woman, they said to her, why are you crying? They've taken away my master, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. As she said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there. She didn't know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? She guessed he must be the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've carried him off somewhere, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Mary, said Jesus. She turned and spoke in Aramaic. Rabboni she said, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, said Jesus. I haven't yet gone up to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm going up to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and told the disciples, I've seen the Master, and that he had said these things to her. On the third page of your handout, you can see my favorite image of Mary Magdalene from the Resurrection Chapel at the Washington National Cathedral. It's a mosaic by Rowan and Irene Lecompte. I love how the glory of the risen Jesus glows in the pure white of his robe and the fire-like warmth of his face and clothing. It's reflected in Mary Magdalene's head covering as she gazes in wonder at her Lord. The full mosaic portrays a city beneath her feet, symbolizing her commission to preach to the apostles. Perhaps like Moses coming down Mount Sinai with a face that shone with God's glory, and like what the disciples saw at the transfiguration, Mary too glowed, even if just inwardly, with the knowledge of Christ's risen glory. This is the image I have meditated upon this Easter week. And as I prepared this talk, I'm one of my favorite figures in all of scripture, 
one who brings me so much joy, I wrestled with the weighty sorrow of the death of my beloved grandmother. And in the long Christian tradition of testimony, I want to share how Mary Magdalene's witness to the resurrection has helped me live my life this week. As some of you know, my 93-year-old grandmother, Gloria, spent the last 10 days on her deathbed. She was finally released from her pain yesterday at noon. This has been heavy on my soul this week, even as I rejoice in breaking my fast. I cast off wintry Lenten colors of somberness and penitence only to put them back on again. And yet I revel in the weather that testifies to the new creation while holding this sorrow in my heart. And so I look to Mary Magdalene as one who was also sorrowed over the death of a loved one. Mary Magdalene has been present with Jesus in his ministry, supporting him and seeing the incredible things he can do, including what he did for her. She is forced to see the disciples whom she tended to like a mother split up over betrayal and denial. She is forced to see her Lord, her teacher and master, tortured and crucified. She watches him die, staying with him to the very end, and finally she buries him. Even in her deep grief and utter confusion, the first thing she does after the Sabbath is go to the tomb before dawn to take care of Jesus. How tired, how discouraged she must feel. I can't imagine she has slept since before Passover, but still she serves, even though her eyes are clouded by tears. The dawn is the coldest part of the day. The hours before dawn, at least in my neighborhood, are when birds sing their loudest, but it is an hour for solitude, for feeling alone. And it is these moments in Mary Magdalene's life that I relate to now, keeping vigil as a loved one dies and caring for them after death. My grandmother, Gloria, was a vibrant and highly opinionated woman raised by German Moravian immigrants in South Texas during the Great Depression and the Second World War. She gave fierce hugs and made the world's best jelly from wild Mustang grapes that she gathered from her ranch on the San Antonio River. And she raised her family in the faith with my grandfather, who died over 20 years ago. About two and a half years ago, she collapsed with a heart problem, and when she woke up, she had severe dementia. She had to relearn her own children's names. She hasn't known me for two years. This has been deeply sorrowful, and in many ways, I have already mourned her loss as her mind lost function. With Mary Magdalene, I say they have taken my grandmother, and I do not know where they have laid her. And unlike Jesus' death, which was relatively sudden and happened when he was about a third of my grandmother's age, Gloria's death was slow, agonizing, exhausting for her and for those who love her. At times, holding on to the certain hope of the resurrection has felt completely and utterly foolish to me. Like Peter and the other disciples, I am tempted to disbelieve it. It's too good to be true. Yet I want to cling to Mary Magdalene in that moment when she says, I have seen the Lord. She has experienced what my grandmother now knows, the face of our risen and glorified Lord. 
With the return of the Alleluia after Lent, we also experience the return of the Gloria. It is bittersweet to me to use my grandmother's name to praise the Lord when I do not feel as jubilant as the melody assumes. Yet I can also borrow her joy. She sings it now as one of the whole company of heaven. And in that way, Mary Magdalene says for me what I struggle to say for myself. He is risen just as he said. In our grief, we can not only turn to Jesus, Lord of our sorrows, Lord of our shame, the one who suffered for and suffers with us, we can also gaze upon him, tortured, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended alongside Mary Magdalene, lifting up our sorrows while beholding and proclaiming the glory of the risen Lord. Let's gather now in small groups and discuss Mary Magdalene's story with the questions on the third page of your handout. And on the, the final page, I added some more resources if you're interested in digging deeper. At the end, I'll conclude our time by taking questions and praying the collect for her feast day. Thank you. All right, um, I'll now open it up for questions. If you have any questions about Mary Magdalene or any of the images or anything else, yes. What's the deal with the red egg? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, the red egg icon is really cool. You can see it there on the, the first page of your handout. Um, so there's a tradition in the Eastern Church that um, Mary Magdalene had very high social status, so she received an audience with the emperor to tell him about Jesus' resurrection, and she brought eggs with her, and this emperor, Tiberius Caesar, said, I don't believe that this happened any more than the eggs that you're holding could turn a different color. And they became red. And uh, that's why she, Mary Magdalene is often portrayed with that icon of her miracle. Eggs symbolize um, new birth from a closed tomb, which is why they're such a part of our Easter feast. And um, some people think that the tradition of dying them comes from that miracle. I have a basic level Bible question, which I'm embarrassed to ask in front of any of my students who I hope are not listening. So it never occurred to me before that maybe the reason Jesus didn't show himself first to the male disciples is that they all ran away and hid for fear of their lives. And it might have been harder to like find them to say, hey, here I am. Um, did she not do that? Was, do we know from the Bible that she didn't run away scared? Um, well, according to the gospel account, she did run away from the tomb, whether alone or with the other myrrh bearers, uh, back to the disciples. But from what we can see, Mary's the only one who came back. So I think there was some element of bravery or just curiosity, or I imagine she felt very dazed and overwhelmed, and just going back made sense to her. Um, but we don't have any more canonical information on her after this. Um, after she went and told the disciples, I have seen the Lord and shared what he said to her about his ascension, 
um, she doesn't show up and acts. Um, so, yeah, we don't know. So one thing on my mind about that is, you know, we're told that if there's no resurrection, then our faith has no hope. But she didn't go to the tomb because it was a resurrection, right? She went to the tomb because she thought there was no one who was a greater hope for her than Jesus. And even though she lost the hope, she still went. That, that's kind of what I'm pondering right now. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful way to think about it. Not everyone all at once. like that we were talking about some of the unnecessarily voluptuous images that you wisely omitted and then this is the solution so when did the red egg tradition is that early or is it later because it seems to be the answer to redeeming some of the deliberately salacious iconography yeah um i'm not sure when it began i do know that it was an eastern tradition and it never quite made it to the west and also the Eastern Church never lost the Gospels and the New Testament in the original languages. And um, Yaroslav Pelikan estimates that's why they never had a Reformation, because they didn't lose it and then have to go back and recover it. And so in that tradition, we never see Mary Magdalene becoming um, who she was claimed to be in the West. And um, yeah, the icon on page two of... Mary Magdalene proclaiming the resurrection to the apostles um, is one that I really love. I have it in my home because it shows her fully modest, cut her head covered. She's wearing bright red, which is a symbol of new life, of like the blood that was flowing again in Jesus' veins. And she's telling the 12, and it is kind of funny because they don't believe. Scripture tells us several times they still don't believe until they see Jesus. But above her, you see the city symbolizing that apostleship role that she has, and also a rainbow, um, which I think is an image of Jesus bringing peace into the world, as Paul so wonderfully illustrates in, um, in his letters, that he himself is our peace, and that God has set his bow in the clouds, never to turn his back on humanity again. Um, and this... This image also comes from the St. Albans Psalter, which was from England, so it has made it into the West. There's still, still a few good things here, but I really depended on the tradition of the East um, for images of Mary Magdalene where she was appropriately portrayed. And there's 11, and so she's the 12th. Perfect. Yeah. Right? Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never seen a photo quite like the the one next to the one you were just referencing, mm -hmm, the holy yeah. woman at the tomb. Um, could you explain a little bit about what's happening there? Yeah, so this is um, a watercolor illustration by James or Jacques-Joseph Tissot, who was um, a well-known painter, artist, illustrator in the 19th century. He's very well-known for how he paints clothing. Um, he does that really beautifully, and you can see he put a lot of outfits in this image. <laughs> um, so this one is of Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb with the other women, bearing the oils and herbs and spices to embalm Jesus' body. And 
it really captures the darkness of the early morning to me. And um, he really interprets Mary Magdalene bending over to look in the tomb to her, like, getting down on the ground, trying to see inside it. Um, and I think those figures that you can see just laying in front of the tomb are supposed to be the guards who were kind of shocked and maybe fainted uh, when the t stone was rolled away. Um, you can look up that image online and see it much bigger uh, and more clearly um, to see all of the, the detail that it has. Melody, could you comment a little bit more on um, the connection between Mary Magdalene as the one that Jesus cast the demons out of and the reputation that she has had as a harlot? And does that say something about cultural biases? Or what, what, are, your, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so all we ever hear in the Gospels about her past is that she had seven demons that were cast out of her. And unlike some other exorcisms in the New Testament, the demons are never named and their symptoms are never identified. And yeah, I do think it does say something about humanity and the leadership of the church in um, the early Middle Ages that they interpreted that in such a salacious way because there's no evidence for it in the Gospels. Um, some people did interpret her having a very um, successful career as a prostitute as the reason why she had so much money to support Jesus out of her own resources, but I think that's unlikely. I doubt that a woman at that time could have been able to amass that much wealth in that way. I think it must have come to her through her family, um, whether that was wealth that she inherited from her family line and, and Roman law allowed that to stay in the family through the woman if there was no other heir. Um, or if she had born three children, then she was granted some financial freedom. Not 100% sure if that applied to non-Roman citizens. I don't know if she was a Roman citizen or not, but at least for wealthy Roman women, having children was a way to receive um, financial and social freedom. So I tend to to go a little more along those lines than uh, making assumptions about her that we just have no canonical warrant to make. I confess this is a comment and not a question, but I'm still stuck on the, you know, disciples having been told in three days I will rise and still not going to the tomb to check out anything and her coming. Um, and maybe this has to do with the demons, right? She has an experience in her life of something that she can't shake being cleansed for her, you know, the house clean um, with his power, a power she doesn't understand. Uh, and the disciples are mostly waiting for Jesus to pull his sword and start the revolution. Yeah. And so it's very clear to them that what they've been hoping for is not gonna happen. It's less clear to her exactly what has happened to, to her, and then maybe less clear that Jesus has actually been defeated. Right, right, and um, I think that's part of the point that Wendy Wright was trying to make, that the reason why 
women were the bearers of the news was because they didn't have a lot of power or privilege. They were on the margins. And Jesus chose them to take the news forth rather than someone who could become a political or um, a military leader. Um, I don't know what well, that means. I'll have the last question. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was just talking with my group that I love in the story when Jesus says her name, mm -hmm. and then she recognizes him. And there's a lot of ways that that name can be intonated, mm -hmm. <laughs> like how he says it. So I was wondering, and I was curious, how you hear that word um, when he says it to her. Yeah, um, because she had already like knew he was there and was speaking to her, um, I imagine the reason she didn't recognize him was because her head was down or because her eyes were full of tears. And so I imagine Jesus saying that to her very softly, like you would gently wake someone up from a nap, just, you know, like I would do with my husband, Marcus, it's time to get up, you know. So I imagine Jesus saying it to her that gently. Um, I've heard people try to say like, oh, Mary was so dumb, she didn't recognize it was Jesus, but you know, who would? Who would expect someone to rise from the dead? Even after Lazarus, they didn't understand. Um, and afterward, when in some of the other accounts, they relate the women saying, he has risen just as he said. And you can see that's when it clicks for them, that they remember that he said that. Um, Next week, we're going to continue with this little mini-series on the gospel stories of resurrection, and Father James is going to be sharing about the road to Emmaus. So please come back. Thank you. I'll just quickly conclude with the collect for her feast day, which is July 22nd. O God, whose only begotten Son entrusted Mary Magdalene before all others with announcing the great joy of the resurrection, Grant, we pray, that through her example, we may proclaim the living Christ and come to see him reigning in your glory, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.